What's up, guys? So awesome to be joining in with you, whether you're watching this on Facebook Live or you're catching a little bit later after the fact on YouTube. It is awesome that we're able to still gather together like this. Now, I know for some of you, you're like Facebook Live veterans, and you've been there, done that. You know how to watch a live stream thing. You know, like, comment, share, all that other type of stuff. Others of you, you're rookies, okay? And so what I want to do is walk you through a little bit of a how to be a Facebook Live churchgoer, okay? So here's kind of the steps. There's really just four kind of basic things. First one is this. It's like the post. You liking the post helps other people find the post, and that helps the gospel go further and faster. The next thing is comment. Comment on, like, what's happening. If you hear something that sounds good and you're digging it, like, say, yes, amen. You can put that all in the sections. If you've got, you know, you're coming from a different place or you're watching it from somewhere crazy, like, log in and, and let us know that. Comment on there because that helps keep the conversation going. Next thing is you can share the post. And again, this kind of goes back to this idea of liking it. You sharing the post is essentially you sharing the gospel. And you have a great opportunity to do that. And all you have to do is just press a button. And so that's a really easy thing to do. The last thing, we got like, comment, share. The last thing I encourage you to do is this, is prayer. And what I mean by that is, and we saw this happen a little bit last week, is post some comments that are prayer requests. You post them, you talk about what's going on. Uh, we had people talking about you know, fear around losing jobs. We had people talking about being a witness to their family and asking each other for prayers. Like I love to see that happen. And so um, put those prayer requests on there and we're gonna have an awesome time being able to um, use what God has given us for his glory and make the most out of this situation. Today we're continuing on in this series called Breakout. And again, um, that was not done on purpose. Uh, we had no idea that, that come this date, we would be um, quarantined because of an outbreak or breakout of a virus. But I think God has a lot of providence and he knows what he's doing. And even the passage we're gonna dive in tonight, I think it helps us with what we're feeling and what we're going through. And so if you got a Bible, you can go ahead and get there and put a thumb in First Peter chapter 4. That's where we're going to be diving in tonight. Um, but what, before we dive into that, I want to talk about this idea of breaking out of panic. That, that's what we're going to talk about today, because I, I do feel like there is a lot of panic going on right now. Now, for some of us, it's not like full bore panic. For some of us, it's low grade. For others of us, we're doing a really good job of hiding it right now, but there's a lot of panic. The dictionary describes panic and defines it like this. A sudden, overwhelming fear, with or without cause, that produces hysterical or irrational behavior, i.e. buying up all the daggone toilet paper, and that often spreads quickly through a group of persons or animals. And so, while I don't know necessarily when the panic is going to end, or necessarily how much you're feeling the panic right now or not feeling the panic, what I know in regards to this situation is we are actually really prepared for this as a church. We're actually, and I'm not talking about MCC, I'm talking about the church. Because here's the deal, guys. This isn't the first thing that something like this has happened to the church in our country. Uh, let me take you back a little bit, uh, about 100 years ago, to the 1920s and 30s. In 1929, there was this thing that happened that's called the Great Depression. So the Great Depression happened, but in the years before that, the economy was booming. Everything was going absolutely great. And you know what was also declining during that period of time was church attendance. And then what you saw in the 1930s was this rapid increase. People found their way back into church, back into pews, and, and, and they found their place inside God's house because they were desperate. Maybe a little bit easier for you to remember if you failed history is 9-11. If you were around at 9-11, you're old enough to remember 
And you saw what happened. You saw after this catastrophic thing happened, you had a lot of people thinking that we were hitting like these end times and an apocalypse was now. And people were questioning like, is this the end of time? People were looking for hope. They were looking for care. And what we saw happening after 9-11 is people began to flood churches. And church attendance, at least for a little while, it rose. And so I, I give you these things to say that now more than ever, people are looking to the church for hope. But friends, there's a reality within what we're experiencing right now that's a little bit different than what happened in the Great Depression and what happened after 9-11. Because here's the deal. After both of those horrible things that had happened, the people could still walk in to a church. They could still find their way into a pew to find the hope that they were looking for. The difference with what we're facing in right now is the church has to go to them. They can't go to church. And as I've been thinking about this and praying about this, I feel like we are more equipped than ever before to be able to to go to them. But here's the deal. I don't think what we're doing right now is the be-all, end-all answer. As I've watched a lot of panic happen in this, and and I've been to grocery stores, I've been around town, I've seen a lot of different things, the, the panic that I am most frustrated with is the panic that I sense in church leaders. People who are in positions like me. And, and, I, and I'm frustrated with their panic because their whole panic solution revolves around turning the, this dial as far as we can up on engaging with people on social media. And saying, man, people are going to be on Instagram more than ever. We need to get as many posts out. We need to go and do 75 different Facebook Live things. We need to do that every single day. And we need to have content, content, content. Because that's what people are craving. But my question is, is more social media really the answer? Even gospel-centered social media, is that really the answer? See, I don't, I don't know if that's what really people are craving, because here's the deal. If social media could have solved the problem all along, why weren't we going there? And, and, and here's the deal, and this is a shift that, that I think is happening, and, and I feel this because uh, of how relationships are. When you think about relationships, there's really three different types of relationships. The first type of relationship is a relationship that's a one-on-one relationship. This relationship is just you and your mom, you and your dad, you and your wife, you and a friend. There's that one-to-one aspect of relationships. And in our lives, whether we're Christian or non-Christian, we need relationships. And so we have that type of a one-to-one relationship. Along with that, we have relationships in what are called like small groups. And, and again, not just talking about the Christian version of small groups, but a friend groups, your peers, your people who you're with, groups of you know, 10 to 12 people. And we need those types of relationships. And then on top of that, we have relationships with large groups. Like we, we come to church or we're, we're part of a, a sorority or fraternity. We have all of these things. And what I sense happening in this panic to, to reach people via social media The church has just continued to focus on just getting mass communication out to large groups. And I think if we do that, we will continue to miss the mark. Because think about this. Let me ask you a real life question for you in your life, where you're at. Think about the things, and when I say things, I mean relationships. Think about the relationships in your life. Out of those three categories, one-to-one relationships, small group relationships, and big crowd relationships. Just the fact that you were part of a bigger crowd, whether it was I, I went and attended that mega church, or I went and I was a part of that fraternity, or whatever it may be, the big crowd thing. 
out of those three categories of relationships, for those of you who, who are followers of Christ, which type of those relationships moved your faith forward the fastest? Like if you could only live off of one type of relationship, if you could you know, put the other two aside and say, this, if it wouldn't have been for this type of relationship, I don't know where I would be with Jesus. I, I think for most of us, and again, everybody's story is different here, but I know for me, when I look back at my own life, I would not have the relationship that I have with Christ if it hadn't been for someone one-to-one discipling me and pouring into me and building a relationship with me. And so I say all this to say, for, for us as a church, I'm just speaking for, on behalf of MCC here, our strategy is going to be, yes, we're going to continue to post things out like this. But we are not going to, at the sake of, of going crazy and posting and content, 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 go and create a million more inch deep connecting points. We want to turn emphasis, and we were doing this with our group leaders, and one of the things that went out today was this call to our group leaders to say, you need to call and be in touch with every single person in your community group. We've already called every person at our church who's 60 plus to check in on them, ask them what they need, ask them how we can help. And here's my challenge to you, in the midst of all this that's going on, don't let coming to something like this and tuning into something like this suffice for you still being able to have a one-on-one connection with someone that may lead them to Christ. Because here's the deal, and this is what we're getting ready to dive into. The end of life may not be as far off as we all think it is. And so we have to make the most of our time. And if the relationships in our lives that put people forward in their faith the fastest and build the deepest, most lasting faith are the one-to-one relationships. And those other two, they're the ones that supplement that and allow those things to grow. Then we want to turn our attention and put some focus and emphasis there. And Peter does a great job of leaning in to what that actually looks like. So if you got a Bible, you can go to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive in to God's Word. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that we are yours and you are ours, and you are 100% fully in control. And you still give us and offer us this grace in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our fear. You come, and I pray, God, that as we lean into your word, a very timely word, a word that couldn't have been orchestrated or planned out any better, I pray that you would speak to your people. You would connect with us right here and right now, because we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you got a Bible... Again, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7. If you've got a Bible, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. We're going to read all the way to verse 13. This is what Peter says. The end of all things is near. Great way to start. And again, did not plan this out. This just happens to be where we are today. Uh, so so call, a, call a God on that one. The end of all things is near. And I'm not saying this is doomsday, so I'm going to get into that a little bit later. But, but I just think it's crazy that that's where this passage that we planned on months and months and months ago would start with. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. 
If anyone speaks, he should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. See, there are four things in this passage that we're going to get to lean into tonight. And I hope you're uh, taking notes as, as, you're, as you're diving into this. Whether you're watching this on a Sunday morning or you're watching this later on. Uh, there are things in here that I pray you can lean into and dive into. Here's what he talks about. He says, if we are going to live lives like his first verse right here in verse 7, kind of right out of the gate as he shifts and makes this new thought. He says, if the end is near, then we need to pray with discipline. We need to love with depth. We need to serve with diligence. And we need to suffer with delight. And we're going to walk through and unpack some of this tonight. So I pray you're taking notes. We're getting ready to walk this down. So we'll start with verse uh, 7. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Another one of the way this word is translated, when it says, therefore, be alert and sober mind, it it says, be self-controlled and of sober mind so that you may pray. Paul puts this hinge between where our mind is at and our ability to pray. And again, if you're taking notes, because the end is near, we pray with diligence. He says, the end is near, guys, so we pray with diligence. Now, I know you, you hear that, and you're like, okay, so like, the end is near? What do, you, what do you mean by that? And again, isn't the Bible really old? So didn't he say the end was near like a really long time ago? Help me understand what's going on here. Okay, so l- let me break it down like this. When, when Peter says the end is near, he's not being like a, you know, a, 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 a false prophet who says you know, the end is near, because the reality is, guys, Jesus also said the end is near. And then he went to the cross, resurrected, ascended into heaven, and, and we're still here. The point that Peter is trying to make in this is that we are in the last stage of God's redemptive plan. And what I mean by that is God created the world. Sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve. God sent his son to redeem his creation. His son lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died sacrificed his life on a cross for us as a perfect life and became the payment, a big theological word, the propitiation for our sins. And in doing so, he conquered death. And through his conquering of death, he rose victoriously from the grave. He resurrected and then he ascended into heaven. And so in God's great redemptive plan, as a father to bring his kids, his kids, you and I, back into the family, We are in the last stage of that. And so we live in this glorious time between the resurrection of Christ and the promised return of Christ. And this is where we find ourselves. And so when Peter says the end of all things is near, what he is saying is God has nothing left on the agenda. In his big redemptive plan, there is no more bullet point. We're there. And that's why he says that. And so Peter's saying, wake up, don't miss this, that everything in life revolves around what you do with the resurrection of Christ and whether or not you believe in that or not. And the big point in this that I would say is what you believe about the future determines how you live today. 
And my question right now is all this is happening is, man, what do you believe about the future? Like, do you just think this is all going to blow over and then things are going to get back to normal? What do you believe about, like, the end? Like, where are you going to go when you die? Like, what, what's going to happen there? See, we have big questions. And Peter says, God, guys, the end of all things is near. He goes on from there. And he tells them, okay, because the end of all things is near, he says, be alert and sober-minded. And, and, he, and he's kind of saying almost the same thing twice here. When he says, be alert and sober-minded. And the reason he's telling this church this is because they were at a place where they were living in a lot of fear, very much like we are. And Peter knew that it wasn't necessarily even drugs and alcohol that he was worried about his people being intoxicated by. He was worried about them being intoxicated by insecurities. And I imagine right now there are a lot of you, and that's your reality. You're intoxicated by the realities that you face. And it's hard to have a cognate thought because you're going crazy in your head, wondering about all the what-ifs. Some of you have insecurities around, man, I don't know common core math. This stuff is crazy. I just want to carry the one. And, and man, I, I don't want to have to go outside and use a water hose. Like, I pray we don't run out of toilet paper. See, we have all these different insecurities around even serious stuff about what's my job going to look like three months from now? Am I even going to have a job three months from now? Are we going to be able to go to church on Easter? Well, what's this going to look like? Will I graduate on time? See, Peter knows that in the midst of uncertain times, in the midst of panic, we have a tendency to be intoxicated with our insecurities. But here's the deal, and you know this if you've ever been drunk. When you are not sober, you lack self-control. And so he's giving them this point to say, if you will stay intimate with God, stay intimate with God, he will give you the ability to have a sober mind. For so many of you right now, it is really hard to pray, isn't it? It's hard to connect with God because the world is spinning. And you want to go watch the news. You want to go see what's going on. You want to go see, like, is Trump really going to give my family $3,000 because we have four kids? I heard that, and I was like, thank God, Ezra. I'm so proud of you for being the fourth member of our family. I'm going to give you a special cut of this. You get the big pie. Um, man, we're surrounded by these insecurities. And what I want you to realize in this, and I think this is the point that Peter was trying to make here, is that intimacy with God eliminates insecurity. And so my hope is that you begin to spend more time with God than you ever have before. That you find your way into the word, into the book. Facebook is great, but I pray that you're not on there more than you are in God's book. That you're in his word, diving into what he has for you. How he wants to speak to you in the midst of a time where it's really easy to be incredibly intoxicated with insecurities. He goes on from there. And in verse 8, he says, Above all, love each other deeply. Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. The, another way that word there and other translations uh, phrase it as is love each other wholeheartedly. Love each other wholeheartedly. And a point that I think Peter is making here, and again, taking notes, write this down. Because the end is near, love with depth. Love with depth. And I want to unpack kind of what he's talking about here. He's, he, he's saying love with depth. And he's talking about this love that covers up a multitude of sins. And remember, guys, he's talking to church people. So what that means is you sin. I sin. There better be some amens in the comment section. We all are still prone to sin. But here's the deal. In, in the midst of our sin, Peter's trying to make this point that we've got to love each other because we know we're going to sin. 
But the reality is, if, if all of our relationships just stayed on Facebook, like say the quarantine lasted for four months, please God do not. Say it lasted that long though. If all of our stuff just stays on social media, do you know what you'll never have the opportunity to do? You'll never have the opportunity to get close enough in, in a love relationship enough with somebody to know where their character may have deficiencies. See, Peter is calling them to this deeper kind of love where you will get up close enough to someone to realize how jacked up they really are. If you're wondering whether or not that principle is true, person who is like head over heels and getting ready to get engaged, man, the longer my wife is married to me, the more she realizes how I am messed up. And what I love about this verse is he says, love people deeply enough that you'll be able to stretch out and cover their sins. And that's a, that's a very fascinating thing to say because stretches, that word that he uses right there, is kind of translated like how a horse, as it's running uh, a derby or, or a horse race, it's literally stretching its body out to make the biggest strides that it can. You know, a cheetah is one of the fastest animals alive, and it's also one of the most flexible animals alive. And that stretching allows it to go further faster. And I believe that the gospel will go further faster in the same way if we're able to stretch and cover our sins of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I want to give you um, this point, this kind of principle as you're studying God's word in the meantime that, that I, I, I have found to be true. And it's that every New Testament point, like every point that you'll find in a letter or something like that, every New Testament point has an Old Testament picture. And the picture of this point about like, hey, what does it even mean for me uh, to love someone enough to cover a multitude of their sins? There's a story in Genesis 9. Uh, you don't have to go there now, but I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a, a synopsis of what's going on here. So everybody remembers Noah, okay? Noah built a really awesome boat. Noah builds a boat. After Noah builds a boat, like he has nothing better to do, I guess, since it's just like him and his folks kind of around. And Noah, uh, the Bible says that he took to, to being a, a man of the earth and he plants this really big vineyard. And uh, he, he's testing his supply after he makes a vineyard and he gets drunk as a skunk. I'm talking like pass out naked in his tent drunk. So he passes out naked. And again, the Bible's a crazy book. So, so you can go in Genesis 9 and read this. He passes out drunk in his tent. And he has a son. He has a son named Ham. Um, not a great name, um, but I'll be Ham. He uh, sees his father. And when Ham passes through the tent and he looks in and he sees his father, he looks and he sees him naked. And what Ham goes and does, instead of covering up his dad, he goes and tells his brothers. And see, this is what this is all about because what his brothers do is actually what this verse is talking about. Rather... Then, then going in and be like, oh, look at dad, like he's super naked and drunk, like, oh man, like there'd be a great time to like, you know, you know snap a picture and, you know, shame him and, and have blackmail and say, dad, you, you owe me, I'm getting a super awesome camel now because I caught you like this. What happens is the two other brothers, after they have got the gossip from their one brother, they go and they stretch out a, a big piece of cloth. And they stretch it out. And then these brothers, while dad is back here, they begin to walk backwards as to not see their father's shame. And they cover him. And see, church, this is what Peter is getting at. He's telling this church, in the midst of your persecution, in the midst of you being attacked for your faith, you're going to get, uh, without even wanting to, you're going to get deeper with each other. And as you get deeper with each other, you're going to realize how messed you up you are. 
And so when he says to cover sin, he doesn't mean we sweep it under the rug or ignore it or hide it. It means I deal with it. I deal with the sin I see in other people's life. And I deal with it in such a way that to the best that I can, I protect that person's integrity. I protect that person's dignity. Because here's the deal. For every single one of us, God has covered us. There are secret sins that every single one of us tuning in right now would hate to have uncovered. So why, when we find out some juicy detail about someone else's life, are we so quick to try to uncover it? Even if it be with a spouse, even if it be cloaked in a prayer request. See, the church needs less hams. And some of you, you've been burned by a church because a ham got you. And you feel the shame because everybody knew your mistake. My hope and my prayer is that we, through this time, we would learn to be a church that can get close up enough with people to realize where there are deficiencies in their character, realize what they're actually still struggling with, and we can handle that in a way that protects their dignity. That's what it means to truly love with depth because we're willing to go to the depths of their brokenness and continue to love them the right way. The next thing, 1 Peter 4, 9. Continuing in this idea of loving with depth. He says, it's not just a matter of the relational stuff. He says, I'm going to get you into some practical things now. And he says, I want you to understand that you have to actually offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And this is a beautiful thing. And I think this is so fitting right now. You're like, hey, like, I'm not offering hospitality. I'm not having anybody over my house. Like, life group is canceled. But here's the deal. There will come a time when we have to be hospitable again where we have to welcome people in, where we have to do this. And there's still a way for us to do this now. But the point that he's trying to make in this, and we see this proved throughout church history, is that what you're in right now, I said this last week, is a sacred place. If you are sitting at a home, you are in a sacred place. Do you realize that the church literally started in homes? Homes of wealthy people. That's where it started. And even from there, not just the church started in a home, your actual faith started with hospitality. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. Will you let me in? Your hospitality, if you're a believer in Christ, hospitality is what got you into the family of God. So he says, if we're going to love deeply, we've got to be willing to open up our homes, not grumble about, oh goodness, we got a vacuum again, to open up our homes to people and care for them. And when we do this, what we're leaning into is both the power and the protection that comes with the body of Christ. Peter goes on in verses uh, 10 and 11. And he says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So Peter says, okay, we're going to have to pray diligently. We're going to have to love each other deeply. And then I believe through this verse, he is saying we are going to have to serve with diligence. Because the end of all things is near, we will serve with diligence. Serve with diligence. And, and this is what he means in this. He breaks it down into two primary ways in which we serve. He breaks it into speaking, gifts of service, and then action. So, so words of service and acts of service. 
Now, some of you, you already know where you're at on the spectrum. You're like me and like, man, God has gifted me with words and I want to use my word gift to be able to encourage people. I want to use my word gift to, to help motivate people into doing things. And then others of you, you're more of an action type of person. You're more like the guys who are up in the sound booth right now sacrificing time away from their family so that they could record me using a, teach, a, a teaching gift, a gift with words. And they're using a gift with action right now. And everybody knows which one you have, but here's the deal. The church will function best when either sides of the coin don't neglect which one is their secondary gift. So just because my gift is words doesn't mean I can't wash the dishes. And just because your gift is action doesn't mean if you see someone struggling, you shouldn't go put a hand on them and go, hey, how can I be praying for you? See, we, we've got to be this church that realizes that all of our gifts are from God. So if you have the gift with words, you speak as though God were speaking. So even now, if you're going to be sharing stuff on Facebook, if you're going to be comment stuff, like do it and saying, I am doing this on behalf of God. If you have the actions, then I go and I serve as if God was serving that person. And here's the point I would ask you to write down and to understand. It's to not let your identity, who you think you are, don't let your identity be grounded in your gifting. Let your identity be grounded in the gift giver. And this keeps you humble because at the end of the day, my gift, how dumb would it be of me to be prideful of my gift when I did not create it, it came directly from God. And every single one of you, whether you're, wherever you're at right now, hear me on this. You have a gift. And maybe for a lot of you guys, man, as church operated like for the past 40, 50 years in this come and see attractional mindset and not kind of what you're experiencing right now as we are the scattered church, some of you, you looked at this gathered church that met on Sundays and had Sunday school or whatever and had Bible study on Wednesday, and you looked at that, and you looked at your own gift, and you went, eh, I don't really know where I fit. Now, some of you, you said that, and it was really just an excuse because you didn't want to wake up early. Others of you, you really didn't know where you fit. And I would say, take this time as what it looks like to be a church, and what is normal, what is our new normal may be shifting. And go, okay, who am I? What may my gift actually be? And say, how can I use this in this strange season we're in? Even in the midst of panic, to break out of panic and be used by God with the gift that he has given me to serve his church. Not just to serve his church here, but to serve his church by bringing in the lost who need to be found. Peter goes on from there. He says that if we're going to be a, a church, if we're going to be a people that lives in mind with the end being near, then we serve with diligence. He doesn't leave it there. He goes to the next verse. If you're taking notes, it's uh, verse 12 and 13. Beautiful passage. Our last one for today. He says, dear friends, dear friends. Peter's writing to a group of suffering people. And he says, dear friends. He's tapping into the relationship. He's tapping into the love he has for them. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. Are there ever more fitting words for kind of what's going on right now? I know for me, like, this is surprising. And I have a hard time not being surprised by, by you know, not being able to go and find sanitizing wipes. I have a hard time being surprised by there not being any paper towels left. I have a hard time being surprised that Amazon Prime won't ship something to my house. It's just part of life. But the reality is, guys, 
And I mean this with some sincerity. If you're going through this and you're not currently actually sick and struggling with the coronavirus, what you're experiencing is not a trial. You're experiencing a situation. You're experiencing something that may be unfortunate. But I would be careful that we look at everything that's going on right now as this is so bad. Because I believe that God is using this for some good. And stay positive. Stay believing that the best is yet to come. Stay believing that God has not given up hope. That he is still in charge. That he is still on the throne. And regardless of what happens, he's still in control. Nothing that comes to us did not first go past him. And so he says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is coming on you to test you. And what if? What if God's church in America needed some testing? When you buy a home, you get it tested. One of the primary things you look at your home is, is, is you look at the foundation. And you see what that foundation is actually like. And what if God is testing us to figure out whether or not our foundation, as the church, his church in this country, if our foundation is built around something to come and see and not around being a movement of people who are called to go and be his hands and feet into a world. So he says, it may come on you, it may test you. He says, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. And he says, okay, don't be surprised. And then he gives them some solution. He says, but rejoice, rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. He says, but rejoice inasmuch you are participating in the suffering of Christ. What this means is every suffering we face, we do not have a savior in Christ who has not suffered in the same way. And so again, if you're taking notes, if we're going to live like the end is near, then we suffer in the same way that Jesus suffered. We suffer with delight. The Bible says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And that joy that was set before him, you could feel your name in there. For Trent, who was set before him, he endured the cross. And if I was the only one who was before him, he still would have endured the cross. If you were the only one before him, he still would have endured the cross. And that is what grace and mercy looks like. It's Jesus saying, it is my delight, it is my joy to suffer on your behalf. Because that's what you actually deserved. You deserve to suffer and you deserve to never experience what it's actually like to have a father who loves you, forgives you, and wants to invite you into this grander family that you were born for and that you were born again for. So he says, suffer with delight. See, Pain and suffering, guys, for a lot of us, that's what we truly fear. Like, man, if we run out of toilet paper and it's like this apocalypse and it's, you know, walking dead all over the place, we're scared. But here's the deal. Pain and suffering, they do something special for our faith. They verify our faith. They clarify our faith. They purify our faith. What I mean by that is it verifies the security of our faith. Whether or not our faith is in just some grandmama faith or our faith was in the reality that Jesus is real. He is risen. My hope is not in the things of this world. My hope is in the eternal future, where I'm going, not where I'm at right now. It verifies our faith. Along with that, it clarifies our faith. It helps us to see what's actually important. And some of you, you're beginning to see that already. You're not in a boardroom anymore. You're not in a work truck anymore. 
you're at home with your kids and you're realizing these are actually the things that are most important. And I want to put my faith around these things that are actually most important. Along with that, pain and suffering purifies our faith. Going through those fiery trials is what purifies away all the rotten things, all the bad things, so that our faith in Jesus is actually a pure and holy faith. And my prayer for you is as we get ready to enter into a time of communion, that you would even now go ahead and uh, get you the elements that you would need to participate in communion, lead your family into that. Because what we're getting ready to do in communion is we are going to literally share in as much of the same suffering that Christ went through. We're going to participate and remember the suffering that he gave when he gave his life. When he was nailed to a cross and he was whipped and beaten and his blood poured out so that we could have a way to enter into this family. And that we would no longer have to live in panic going, is the end near? Is the end of all things about to happen? Like, I I don't know. If, If the end is near, I can be okay. Because I know what his return brings for me. I know that when he returns, he's going to look me in the eyes because of the faith that I put in him, not of anything I've done on my own accord, not on my good works, not on my pedigree, not on me having perfect a church attendance, even when it was on Facebook Live. He's going to look at me, and because of the faith that I've put in him, and faith alone, he's going to look at me, and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in to paradise. And so I ask you, do you know that's what he's going to say to you? And if you don't, i love for you to reach out. I make myself wholly available to you to have a conversation, to help you figure out who Jesus really is and who he wants to be to you and who he has been to you all along. I can't wait to see what happens in the next couple of weeks. We've already got uh, baptisms prepared. Uh, the movement of the gospel does not slow down. We're going to keep being the church, the hands and feet of Jesus. We're going to get to now in this moment remember the time when his hands and feet were nailed to a cross for us so if you will go ahead and grab the elements for your communion at your home and grab mine Jesus on the night that he was to be betrayed he held up a vat of wine And he looked his friends in the eyes in the same way that I'm looking you and yours. And he said, take this cup. Because it is my blood that's going to be poured out for you. For the forgiveness of sins of all mankind. And then after he took the cup, he held up some unleavened bread. And it's okay if yours isn't unleavened. It can be loaf, it can be white, it can be wheat, it can be anything. As long as it's bread. And he held it up. And he said, this is my body. It's going to be a broken and, and torn for you. And then he invited his friends in the same way I invite you to now taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste of his body. It was broken on a cross you
taste of the juice that represents how his body, the same way that a fruit would be crushed and have all the life that was inside of it squeezed out, was squeezed out so that you could be brought in, brought into God's family, the place you have always belonged. Taste and see. Wherever you're at right now, I invite you to just take a moment and pray. Pray out loud. If you're with people, pray out loud. Let everybody pray. Disregard if my prayer overlaps yours. Pray where you're at. If you're taking this as a family, men of God, I encourage you to take the lead here. If you're taking this alone, know you're not alone. Know that he's in the room, he's in the car, He's wherever you are right now because you're communing with him. Take a moment to pray and I'll close this out. Oh, dear Jesus. We thank you for the victory that is only found in you. We thank you that though while your body was broken and your blood was poured out so much so that you yelled out in a loud voice and you said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you screamed and you breathed your last. They took you down from the cross. I put you in a tomb. But three days later, you rose. You rose. And I pray, God, that as my friends, as my brothers and sisters in Christ, as those who may even be far off from you right now, that they would take the victory that is on display through the cross and the empty tomb, and they would apply that to their life right now, and that that victory would give them hope that the end of all things would actually be something that they could look forward to. And Father, I pray that even as you say in your word that the end of all things and near, that this coronavirus would be a thing that we would lean into your promise and say that it is coming near to its end. Pray that your people of faith would begin to have dominion, that we would begin to break strongholds, we begin to worship you and re-solidify our foundation in your word, in communion with you, and in sacrificial giving, and open up our homes, even if it breaks CDC standards, to, to welcome in those who are in dire need of help. I pray, God, that we would be your church, that we would live knowing 
that we're part of your family. That we are exiles in this world, that this is not our home. That we were not made for this place. That we are a different subset of culture because we have your blood in our veins. We love you, Jesus. May your word spread further, faster, and stronger than anything else. In your name, amen. As we got to participate in this joyful thing that is remembering uh, the Lord's sacrifice, we as a church, we continue to believe in the benefit of following after Christ's sacrifice and continuing to give sacrificially. I know now is a time more than ever where, you know, we worry about what is my future going to look like? And finances are now more than ever a thing where there is insecurity. And I probably would imagine that's probably the thing that you and your family are probably the most insecure about. And, and my simple question to you is, will you continue to worship God? Is his word conditional or is his word his word? And I don't say that to put any sort of guilt trip or any sort of um, pressure on you because I feel that pressure as well. I, as a church, like my livelihood is dependent on your generosity. And because of that, there's a lot of fear. But my hope in all of that is that all of our faith, mine included, would be greater than the fear. And we would trust God. And we would allow, even in this season, us as a church to be able to rise up and meet our needs. And so that's one of the things, even now, like, we're looking at, okay, if we're in this season and God's people are continuing to give, we know we cannot fiscally just continue business as usual. And we're going to have to do something different. So my encouragement to you is wherever you're at, is to pray, to think, to trust, and to invite God to lead you to whatever it looks like, to be a generous person, one who lives like they truly believe that the end of all things is near. And home is just around the corner. I love you, church. Can't wait to be back with you in real time. Hug your neck, shake your hand, and be who we've been called to be. In the meantime, be blessed and be the hands and feet of Christ.